0: Brexit and Trump, two ballot box revolts that, though different in many ways, shared one clear thing in common, the fury they provoked from the establishment. This was a white lash. Racist populism is out of the bottle.
1: Hi, it's Tom Slater here, and that was a short snippet from Spiked's new film, Deplorables, Trump, Brexit and the Demonised Masses, which we're very excited to be releasing today on Spiked. It tells the story of those two key populist revolts of 2016, not from the perspective of the politicians, but from the perspective of the voters. We travelled from the Essex coast to the Rust Belt, talking to writers, academics and voters to explore what really drove those so-called deplorables, the people so often dismissed as bigots and fools, to deliver those two political upsets. It features fantastic contributions from Selena Zito, Matthew Goodwin, Glenn Lowry, Paul Embury, and more it's really something rather special. And to celebrate, Spiked's Fraser Myers has put together a special edition of the Spiked podcast, discussing populism in Britain, America and Italy with some more fantastic guests. So without further ado, let's hand over to Fraser and be sure to go to spiked-online.com to watch the full film.
2: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Spiked podcast. To celebrate the release of Deplorables, we're taking a step back from the week's news to explore the populist moment in more depth. We'll look at the new voices that have burst onto the political scene, the backlash from the old order, and the democratic potential of these popular uprisings. We'll talk to Spike's editor, Brendan O'Neill, about Brexit Britain, editor of Modern Age, Daniel McCarthy, about Trump's America and journalist Alessandra Bocci about Italy's populists in power. Everyone recognises that we're living in an extraordinary moment of political volatility, with shocks to the system almost becoming the norm in the West. But how did we get here, and how is populism shaping our politics? I asked Brendan O'Neill about the first great earthquake in our series.
0: Brexit, I think, has not only impacted on Britain, but the entire world. Mm. I really do think uh, uh, the thing is, it's it's a kind of um, conflictual situation, because on the one hand, Brexit, you could say Brexit has utterly changed British politics and has upended everything. Uh, It's uh, devastated the two mainstream parties, Labour and the Tories, uh, Is exposed the uh, unworkable divisions within those parties. It has raised historical questions that everyone thought had been put to bed. The question of democracy, the question of sovereignty, the question of who rules and by what authority do they rule. You know, those questions that have fueled the biggest conflicts in English history in particular, and also British history, have come back to the surface courtesy of the Brexit vote. So, it's very easy to say that brexit has changed british politics radically in a way that it will never recover from in uh, in uh, in any kind of real sense but at the same time i think you can also argue quite legitimately that all those things were there already and all that Brexit did was blow them up to the surface of political life. You know, we've known for a long time that there is a huge moral and political divide between the elites and ordinary people. Um, There's a divide between those who adhere to political correctness and those who do not. There's a divide between those who think, freedom of movement is essential to a progressive society and those who are more favourable in relation to borders and and, uh, national sovereignty. So all those tensions and divisions have been bubbling under the surface for a very long time. What Brexit did was give them a bit more um, substance and depth and form and allow people to line up on one side or the other. And that is now the new divide in British politics. It's not left or right, it's Remainer versus Lever. It's are you a Remainer, someone who thinks politics should be done by experts on preferably a global scale because political problems are too big for ordinary people to understand, Or are you a leaver, someone who prefers the idea of national democracy over globalism and who trusts communities better than experts to decide how life should be governed?
2: It's been three years now since we voted to leave the EU and we still haven't left. Are we still living in the populist moment around the Brexit vote or has it died
0: out? I think we are absolutely still living in the populist moment. I think Brexit as a policy is kind of on its last legs and may well not happen um, not through the desires of the public who clearly want it to happen, but through the kind of machinations of the political class who desperately don't want it to happen and have done everything within their power, politically, legally, um, to prevent it from happening. So Brexit as as a policy of breaking away from the European Union might not happen. Um, it seems pretty clear that it's, it's, it's questionable, at least, whether that will happen. But the the ideas behind it, the desires behind it, the populist surge behind it is still there. And that can't be so easily put back in the box. Um, You know, the democratic genie is out of the bottle. So I think all the kind of urges behind Brexit, which is for people having greater say, people having more democratic clout the nation being turned back into a kind of sovereign, independent state that is not interfered with by foreign oligarchies, a a real kind of instinct for greater national democracy. That kind of popular sentiment is still there, still burning away, is still incredibly important, and is still valued by huge numbers of people. So that side of Brexit, the Brexit spirit is not as easily done away with as Brexit as a policy might be.
2: Next, I met Daniel McCarthy in Washington, D.C. to ask whether he thinks the U.S. is still living through the populist moment, three years on from Trump's shock victory.
3: We very much are, and I think the difficulty that Donald Trump is facing is whether he can still take advantage of the populist moment. Um, I think Trump himself still has populist instincts, but he's clearly surrounded himself and his campaign has been filled with uh, people who are more conventional Republicans. And I think they are going to have an agenda which um, you know, may not be as populist as Trump himself would like.
2: What, in your views, created the conditions for the populist upsurge?
3: It's really a failure of elite government and a complete uh, delegitimization of America's ruling class, uh, whether we're talking about the economy or the political system, or for that matter, the mass culture. Americans uh, look at the kind of culture that, for example, um, Silicon Valley represents, that Facebook and these other tech companies represent. They look at the kind of censorship that these companies engage in. You look at the economy, and uh, you know there are large parts of uh, america uh, the what's called the Rust Belt, for example, the industrial Midwest, and other places that used to have heavy industry, which feel as if they have been sold out by uh, the financial industry and by the people who have the decision making power uh, where our economy is concerned and then politically speaking, um you know we've had these two parties which have been at one another's throats on a number of very symbolic issues, and yet I think uh, people on both the left and the right feel as if uh, neither party has been able to deliver. A program that actually gives voters what they want, gives them you know, uh, an economic outlook and a, a cultural environment in which they feel as if um, their interests, as opposed to the interests of just the highly educated elite are being well served. So there's a crisis of legitimacy right now in the American system. Would you say that the social contract is broken down? I would say that there is this, you know, sort of not just a social contract in the Lockean sense, but this informal understanding uh, in any successful society that uh, the different layers of society, the different classes are going to integrate to some degree and that people will feel as if uh, they have opportunity to move up that their children will have brighter futures than they themselves might have had, and that there is a sense of, um, you know, society doing well for every element within it, uh, whether it's the rich or the poor or the middle class. And I think over the last 30 years, um, especially over the last 15 or 20, Americans have come to feel as if we have a very detached and self-serving elite. And in some ways, I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of the situation in France uh, before the French Revolution, where, you know, the aristocracy still had a number of privileges, but they no longer had a sense of noblesse liege, and they no longer actually had a kind of active role in terms of shaping local society. They wanted to all sort of absent themselves from the uh, the provinces and go off to Paris and enjoy themselves as opposed to being a real responsible governing elite. And I think here in America, there's a sense that our highly educated elites and quite wealthy elites really have the same sort of uh, detached attitude. The more highly educated you, you are, the more likely you are to be very happy with liberalism and with the political class that has been ruling the country for the last 20 odd years. And the less educated you are the more likely you are to be very unhappy with uh, that uh, ruling class and i think this is a fundamental difference in terms of not just economic outlook but really a uh, you know a fundamental culture and cultural and uh, kind of spiritual commitment
2: now we go to italy where in 2018 two populist parties took power in coalition Alessandra Bocci is based in Milan. I caught up with her over Skype. Hello? She explained the role of the two parties.
4: So we have the Five Star Movement, which is more of a sort of libertarian, uh, left-wing kind of populism, even if they reject the term being defined as left-wing. And then you have the more right-wing, anti-immigrant, identitarian uh, league party. And they formed a coalition together, and at the beginning... The five-star movement was the one with the most votes. Um, But right now, the League, even in the last European elections, showed that they have surpassed the five-star movement and they are by far the most popular party in Italy at the moment.
2: The populist surge in Italy followed years of economic crisis and technocratic government. And as with Brexit, the European Union played a key role.
4: Italy is suffering suffering from a deep uh, economic crisis. Uh, Unemployment is very high, especially youth unemployment. uh, And also the jobs that that exist are very precarious, meaning that they are low paying jobs um, and they are not secure jobs. So um, while we face this economic crisis, the European Union is set to to, uh, continue or to even um, increase the austerity measures that have been set in place for years now. The majority of the people in this country are sick with how things have been run recently and they just want to live a decent life, be able to provide for their families um, and think about a future, you know, for their children.
2: Usually people explain populism with reference to immigration. But how important is immigration to the populist mood at present?
4: Uh, migration is not at the top of the agenda anymore because the issue has been largely solved at the moment. It's interesting because... It used to be the major uh, cause for a party like the league. And now that the issue has been solved, it's not like they have gone down in popularity. No, they have gone up. Actually, they've surpassed the five-star movement. So people are very happy with the fact that this issue has been resolved because it's necessary before being able to uh, solve issues like the economic crisis, because You know, mass migration affects the economy as well. People are okay with accepting X number of people, but the thing is, they want to be able to decide who comes in and for what reasons. It cannot be imposed on them. Before you have to be a sovereign country, an independent country, and afterwards you can, you know, implement the solutions to people's uh, problems and in people's lives.
2: And what's behind the rise of Matteo Salvini and the League in particular?
4: People are very happy to see. Uh, a party or a leader who's able to really stick to what he said and implement solutions regardless of what other people say to him or other people trying to resist him which is the case in um the establishment politicians and the, the establishment media uh as well as from the european union so um they're very happy to see these results and also salvini is very effective i think with social media so he is able to communicate in a way that really relates to common people.
2: But in August this year, the populist coalition collapsed in dramatic fashion. I had a second conversation with Alessandra.
4: Well, so the Deputy Prime Minister, Matteo Salvini, the head of the right-wing populist league party, decided to break off the coalition with the five-star movement after one year because he said that the two parties were not getting along, that they had different views on too many issues. And in doing so, he thought he could call for early elections and possibly win the elections. Um, He was polling at almost 40% uh, in the latest polls. He was by far the strongest party in the country. However, he doesn't have the power to call for early elections. And he wasn't foreseeing the fact that the five-star movement could have formed a coalition with the establishment Liberal PD uh, party.
2: So have the populist five-star movement sold out and joined the establishment?
4: They decided to betray their base in order to stay in power. That's exactly what happened. And so, yes, they've become part of the establishment. They're no longer a populist party, not just in doing so, but even in their policies. I mean, they don't stand for anything that's against the establishment. Um, In any way, whether it's towards the EU, whether it's towards immigration, whether it's towards big financial powers, the establishment. PD party was the main party they opposed. It was their main enemy. And now they've, they've decided to form a coalition with it just to avoid early elections because they knew that they were polling half what they got in the last election. They were losing votes to the league. They knew that there was if there was another election, they would lose. The people who are in power at the moment in Italy are not letting the population have a say.
2: Back in the US, I wanted to find out if Trump was delivering for his voters, especially those on the Rust Belt, who have voted Democrat for years and tried their luck with Trump in 2016. Daniel McCarthy.
3: He's delivered a great deal for them, especially on questions of trade. We've seen, you know, a growth in American manufacturing employment over the last uh, three years. We've seen a growth in uh, workers' wages as well. This is just astonishing. These, these are things that, um, you know, uh, American economists had said were simply never going to happen. The jobs would never come back. Um, you know uh, that uh, you know these would not be growing sectors. They would not uh, pay people better. Um, you know it was time for everyone to move to becoming a knowledge-based you know economy employee. And uh, Trump has actually been able to reverse a little bit of that his policies um, but you know whether it's enough to get him reelected is going to be a, a big question and um, you know the question too is whether his campaign is going to focus enough on the industrial midwest on places like Michigan places like Wisconsin um, you know potentially he could even win a place like Minnesota. Uh, or whether his campaign is going to try to, you know, sort of do a traditional Republican-style campaign and try to win uh, places in the uh, Southwest, you know, whether it's New Mexico or Arizona or wherever. I think uh, Trump's... uh pitch is much less uh, well-developed for um, those parts of the country than it is for um, the industrial Midwest. But again, a lot of, you know, sort of elite Republicans still do not f- feel as if this group of voters in the industrial Midwest in the Rust Belt, people who back in the 80s were in fact called Reagan Democrats, um, but a lot of elite Republicans today just do not feel as if those voters are the right people to be appealing to. They feel as if, you know, um, they're retrograde in their social views and they feel as if they should still be, you know, consigned to the dustbin of economic history.
2: Even when the public votes for populist leaders, parties and policies, they come under enormous pressure from the establishment to change course. Back in Britain, at the last election, both of the main parties pledged to deliver Brexit, but many politicians have since abandoned their promises. Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in July. He's seen as more of a populist leader than his predecessor. He was also a leading figure in the Leave campaign and he has promised to take Britain out of the EU by October 31st. I asked Brendan O'Neill whether he trusts Boris with Brexit.
0: No, and, and less so as time goes on, in fact. Um, I've always been a little bit Boris sceptical. He seems to be veering very much towards rehashing the withdrawal agreement.
2: So this is the deal negotiated by Theresa May. Why is this such a problem?
0: The withdrawal agreement and the political declaration would also keep us beholden to ECJ jurisdiction. It would make it very difficult for us to leave these new arrangements without the approval of the European Union. It would, as Boris and others previously said, keep us as a kind of vassal state. So um, he's moving in that direction, which I think really reveals something incredibly important, which is that there is no wing of the political class, and this includes the supposedly lever wing, which is capable of seeing through Brexit and capable of making Brexit happen in the very simple sense of stopping Britain being a member of the European Union. The fact that none of them can see this through really demonstrates what a radical idea it is and how disorientating it is for the status quo and for the political class who are horrified by the prospect that politics should be done in a democratic rather than a technocratic way, and that their expertise would be called into question by stupid, ordinary people. So that even Boris, supposed Mr Brexit, is not going to make Brexit happen, tells us a really important story about how powerful and radical and important Brexit is.
2: Populism is often used as a kind of dirty word. Should it be a dirty word?
0: No, absolutely not. Populism. Really, it just means uh, ideas and policies that are popular with large numbers of people. And that's precisely why the chattering classes and the elite, the elites and Brussels and, and the rest of the kind of technocratic expert class, that's why they hate populism, precisely because these are ideas and themes and arguments that are popular with huge numbers of people, which makes them instantly suspicious. What we have to say To the anti-populists, who I think are are by far the greatest threat to political life in in the West right now, you know, it's anti-populists who are maiming people on the streets of France. It's anti-populists who are immiserating the Greek working classes. It's anti-populists who are instituting censorship and um, trying to overturn huge democratic votes. You know, it's anti-populists who are really behaving like out of control authoritarians and and violent uh, political machines. They are the ones who are so obviously the greatest threat to peace and democracy in Europe right now. So what I think we need to say to them is firstly, you are the problem, not us, the populists. And also we have to recognise that ordinary people are not just as much cut out for politics as you are, but very often they're better at it. And they're better at it because they live in society in a way that you don't. So all those gilets jaunes on the streets of France, they understand French society infinitely better than Macron and all his people ensconced in their palaces. There's absolutely no question about that. And those millions of people who voted for Brexit, they understand the economic and social problems across the United Kingdom far better than the Remainers uh, trapped in the Westminster bubble do. And that's what I think we have to keep reminding people of, that the, the populists, the people, the populace, understands political problems better than the elite and should be trusted more than the elite in determining the future of the nation they live in.
2: Alessandra Bocci.
4: A lot of you know the media elites that are hostile to these uh, populist figures uh, associated with demagoguery, Uh, But really, it's about listening to the people and what they want and what they need. People see with globalization that they're losing control over their lives, their families, their countries like they no no longer have control on how things are run in in their communities and in their countries and while they see uh, this control being lost they they are seeing their lives at the same time deteriorating so the reaction is I want to take back control and this was the case for Brexit and this is this was the case for the election of Donald Trump this was the case in Italy too control on you know how your country is run both in terms of migration and also in terms of just their economy and this is why populism is. Is rising so much, especially among the working and middle classes.
3: Daniel McCarthy. I mean, there's a sense in which populist and democratic are both, uh, you know, the f- same fundamental idea. There's this sense that uh, the great public of the nation, the, uh, the citizenry, the people, um, has to have some representation. And there is a natural tendency I think by any ruling elite of any kind, even if they're elected officials as opposed to hereditary aristocrats, there's a natural tendency for people in positions of power um, to sort of become a um, separated class unto themselves. To have a, a mentality that's different from the people who elect them uh, or the people who work for them and uh, to have um, you know a kind of set of cultural markers – that serve to reinforce their own power and exclude others, and sometimes this is even a completely unconscious phenomenon. It's just you know the the natural way that power works out among different human groups, and uh, so there's a need if you want to have democratic or popular politics of any kind to constantly be willing to confront that kind of elite um, uh, crudescence and sort of um, circling of the wagons and and break into that and say you actually do need to have some circulation, some fresh blood get into the elites and to have a sense of mobility within society, that people are not simply uh, forced to be, uh, you know, a kind of um, uh, into serfdom of, you know, either a literal or a figurative kind, but that they really do have a chance to kind of grow and develop and see their own children uh, have a, a brighter future than they've had themselves.
2: And finally, I asked Brendan O'Neill what his hopes are for populism in the future.
0: The main thing I hope, I hope it carries on. I hope it doesn't get defeated. And there's always the risk of that happening. The political class in the UK is almost uh, completely united in its determination to thwart Brexit and frustrate the democratic will. And we've seen numerous efforts across Europe where the European Union and its various um, institutions, its various bureaucratic institutions, have done everything they can to clamp down on populist sentiment, whether it's in Greece or in Eastern Europe or in Italy or or anywhere else. So the first thing I hope is that the the populist spirit survives and continues. And the second thing I hope is that it becomes a bit more intellectualised and a bit more substantial and it becomes more than simply a, a sense of anger with the political establishment, which I think is a very positive anger, and becomes something much more visionary and forward-looking and substantial and I would prefer it also to become something a bit more radical and leftish and to move away from some of the more hard right elements that have attached themselves to the populist moment that's That's what I would like to see happen. The good thing, I think, is the extent to which populism more broadly, but Brexit in particular, has become a real kind of rallying cry for people around the world, in fact. Uh, You know, Brexit has really kind of lit a fire under the arse of the old establishment, so to speak, and has struck terror into establishments across the Western world and excited peoples across the Western world. And you hear people in the US talking about. Brexit states, which are those states which were more likely to rebel against the old Clintonite establishment. Uh, People across Europe talk about Brexit all the time. They wonder if they can get a bit of the Brexit spirit in their own countries and and make good on their Eurosceptic outlook. I've heard people in Australia talk about the Brexit spirit having come to Australia when Scott Morrison surprisingly won the recent elections. So Brexit, I think, has played an incredibly important role in making it clear to people that politics doesn't have to be the way it's been for the past 40 or 50 years and it is possible to radically change things in such a way that the old political establishment has less clout and ordinary people have more and I think if populism moves in that positive democratic direction that will be a wonderful thing.
2: Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Spiked podcast. Don't forget to watch Spiked's new film, Deplorables, Trump, Brexit and the Demonised Masses. And you can do that now by
0: going to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.